0: You're listening to The Magnet Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome. You guys are listening to the Magnet Theatre Podcast. I am your host, Lewis Kornfeld. Today I am speaking with Brandon Gardner. Brandon plays at the UCB Theatre on The Curfew. He also teaches the Improvise Play class. And he's also the curator of Your College Improv Advisor, a fantastic blog with tons of useful advice and experience for uh, improvisers both college-bound and beyond. Brandon, thanks for being here and talking. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Um, so I want to start off by talking about... Uh, um, your website, Mm -hmm. um, uh, because you have a reputation as sort of the college improv guru. How did that happen?
0: (laughs) Well, I started, uh, improvising myself in college and, um, found out about, uh, improv just by seeing a flyer, like in a, in a dining hall and did mainly short form, uh, in college. And then during college, uh, took a workshop with, uh, UCB Torco and I think before that, I was mainly going to, the only theater I really knew about was Second City. So I was sort of it's like, well, I guess I'll go to Chicago after I graduate. And um, where was this? This, uh, the, uh, Skidmore college has a national college comedy festival cool. yeah. every year. So I was at that and that was <laughs> sort of informative both cause you sort of see what other college improv groups are doing in sketch groups. And at least for us, it was sort of, uh, humbling where it's like, oh, there's people doing really cool stuff. Yeah. And I think we were happy with what we were doing, but we would see that and be like, oh, we should be, uh, there's more that we could be doing. Um, and then I took a workshop with uh, Brian Husky, who was on the Torco at the time, and loved it and was sort of like, well, if that's so close and I and I like it, I might as well move to New York mm-hmm. um after college. Yeah. And then I joined uh Turco myself in two thousand nine. And so I would go to colleges um basically two or three times a month during uh, when college was in session. And um, I started teaching around that same time and teaching a lot of workshops for uh, college groups. And I think part of why I uh, had the idea for the blog was that uh, a lot of times you would sort of run into the same problems with groups. So they would have the same things they wanted to talk about. Uh, And I sort of saw that there wasn't a lot of necessary information for
1: them mm-hmm. where they were. What would be the sort of main issues that are coming up repeatedly?
0: I mean, the most common question, which uh, I don't think there's a correct necessary answer for, but it's uh, what should I do after I graduate? Uh-huh. Um, and usually it's, should I move to Chicago, New York or LA? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, and how do you, cause that's a very difficult question. It's a very answer. loaded.
0: Yeah. Question. Um, I think, being New York biased, the most common answer I sort of settled into, uh, was, uh, come to New York and, um, uh, if it becomes something where, uh, you want to do more industry stuff, you can always go to LA if you, if you want to be auditioning more or something like that. But, um, uh, yeah, there wasn't really a reason, uh, to tell them like go to New York versus Chicago or as opposed to Chicago, um, I think every like I think the strengths maybe from what I hear from people from Chicago are um, it's sort of like the the mecca it's where it, like sort of a lot of long form started, and um, I think a lot of people pitch it as sort of the place where you could maybe get more experience and stage time mm-hmm. faster. Um, and I think I have a similar pitch, sort of to New York, which is like it's a good place to sort of like hone your skills. Uh, L.A. to me seems a little bit more crowded Mm -hmm. that way Mm -hmm. um so new york's a good place it's like um take classes be on a team focus on that and sort of develop your sort of comedic voice and then when you feel ready to um move on from that you can always move if you want to yeah
1: yeah yeah chicago has that amazing glamour to it yeah um but it sort of feels to me never having played in chicago Mm -hmm. Uh, it feels like New York is at a really good stage right now where there's a huge amount of opportunity for people to just get up on stages constantly.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think the whole, uh, long form scene in New York is definitely as big as it's ever been. Yeah. Um, and there's, yeah, I I think a ton of opportunity between how many, uh, um, theaters there are and indie theaters to,
1: uh, get a lot of, um, playing time. Yeah. So I want to talk about uh, your class, The Improvised Play. Great. Uh, um, can you tell us a little bit about the idea behind it and, and what skills you're offering people with sure. it? Sure. So it's really popular class.
0: Uh, yeah, it's a class I really love uh, teaching. Um, I think the inspiration was partly that I came to UCB uh, very improv-focused. Mm-hmm. It's like all I knew that I loved was improv. Uh, and at a certain point at UCB, I started to think, well, what... Um, Should I be working on something else uh, as like a next step? Uh, I'd sort of gotten a lot of my UCB goals where I was like, well, I want to perform on a team and I want to do Torco and teach. Um, And so I started taking a playwriting class. Mm -hmm. And I was taking with this woman, uh, Julie McKee, who's a playwright who teaches at HB Studios. Mm -hmm. And she, I thought, had a really great intro to playwriting um, course that would sort of take you step by step through like sort of exercises uh, like for example, one exercise would be, um, write a, um, like 10 page scene where one character wants something from the other character. Mm-hmm. So you just slowly start to, to figure out like what makes for a good scene or what can make for a play. And I think from that I started getting more interested in, in the idea of, of an improvised play and using those same sort of concepts she was doing in class with writing and having people think that way about, um, improv. Um, and I think part of what was so interesting about it was that I had, you know, only improvised at UCB, really not done anything that involved any kind of like narrative or story at all. Um, so sort of curious about trying to combine that with what I knew
1: about improv from the training I'd had. Mm -hmm. How do they dovetail together?
0: Well, I think the thing that I try to do with the improvised play class to try to use the strengths of the, the people at that point who've been taking these classes is to, um, still have this quality of like game, but more focused uh, sort of like character games, the Mm -hmm. way it might be taught in in sort of a mono scene of trying to give your characters like a clear point of view Mm -hmm. so uh, that stays consistent through a piece. And so I think that's like the big one. I think um, a lot of the people, like they sort of have an understanding of what makes a good um, scene already uh, as far as like an improvised scene. Um, So the things we would sort of talk about in class that, that isn't really something that I think they had done in any, uh, class before that is this idea of, of sort of character wants, um, which is something we talked about in playwriting and objectives and things. Some of them as actors may have been familiar with. And that's one thing that I do that I think is really fun with the class is when people apply for it, I ask, uh, them to, um, talk about whatever theater background they have. Mm -hmm. And I try to do a, a, an even mix of people who are have maybe done a lot of acting. And I've had a couple of people that really have, like, sort of impressive acting backgrounds and, and theater training. And people who have none that are, like, fell in love with improv um, and are trying to work on that side of it, of, like, as an actor or performer. Mm. Um, and so I think that's very interesting, getting those, like, groups of people, people that are, like, actor-actors and improviser-improvisers in the same kind of room. Um, And, uh, but yeah, I think like things like character objectives and like what's a character want and trying to put it, I think in the, in the class, um, like very simple, uh, sort of structures of like, let's just have one character who we establish wants something in the the early part of the play. And then by the end of the play, let's make sure that they decidedly, uh, get it or
1: don't get it Mm -hmm. so that it feels like we have a full kind of arc. Yeah. It's interesting to me because. I got into improv um, uh, specifically because I had been in film school and mm-hmm. was unhappy with the way that I was taught dramatic structure and mm-hmm. was unhappy with the way that I was taught to work with actors because mm-hmm. it, it you learn sort of a shorthand. It's probably true of most film schools. Mm-hmm. You learn a, a simple shorthand of breaking down into the super objectives and, and then right. break that in, down into more individual objectives and then your beat sheets and all that right. kind of stuff. And uh, um, what I didn't like was, to me, it felt like a very sterile approach Mm -hmm. to thinking about performance. Mm -hmm. And it didn't capture the sense of liveliness and spontaneity that I found I connected with in the movies that I really liked. And it, it seemed to me that in real life, I don't know what I want. I'm driven by these sort of invisible desires that right. my brain is putting up a kind of screen against. Right. So, you know, I don't really see it. So it seemed inauthentic to me to then have this kind of godly perspective of knowing every single moment exactly what these people want. Right. So I started improvising with the goal to be in one uh, eight week class at UCB, learn a little bit of vocabulary mm-hmm. of, of how to be spontaneous and then kind of go from there and ended uh-huh. up getting sucked in for for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. But interestingly, I've come all the way and done an absolute 180. Mm -hmm. And I still don't agree necessarily with the way that I was taught. Right. But for me as a performer, it's all about you just got to, you know, exactly what you want moment by moment. Right. I think the difference for me is having learned it in a classroom setting where you're kind of analyzing versus learning it from a performance setting where you're learning to sense where it's coming from inside of you. That sometimes I still can't exactly say it in words, but I know exactly what my purpose is in a scene. And that made all the difference in the world. So how do you bridge that gap between, between having something be just sort of intellectual for people, something they can grasp, but not do and making it something that gives like a a dramatic core to their action. One thing I kind of forgot to say is that
0: in college, uh, I ended up being a theater major mainly because uh, I had already fallen in love with improv. Yeah. And I even thought I was like, well, should I just drop out of college now and go to second city or somewhere to study? Uh, and I sort of was like, well, no, I should, I'm two years in, I'll try to finish a degree. And then what felt like the closest to studying improv was being a a acting major. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I was not a a strong student, I don't think in it. And it was, it was interesting that it was very sort of challenging to me, um, in a way that school had never been before. Cause suddenly it wasn't about like, if you, um, study and read and write well, you'll get a good grade. Um, And that was very interesting, but I think, um, it did make me a little bit more, I don't know that I'm like a great actor now, but I think I'm better than I I would have been if I hadn't taken those classes Mm -hmm. and opened me up a little bit to being a little bit more, uh, versatile and a little bit more emotional. So there's a lot that I think I would pull for this, uh, play class that would be like an acting, uh, um, thing that I remember from some class, some exercise we did um, back in school. Um, and then as far as trying not to make it feel too uh, sort of analytical, I think there is something we talk about in the class too of uh, sometimes rather than sort of deciding on an objective um, and being like, well, that'll be my objective in the, in the play, for someone for the whole cast to sort of just be looking for it so that after like the first and second scene sort of just thinking it's like, oh, it seems like that person's the protagonist. It Mm -hmm. seems like they have the biggest want. Mm -hmm. They sort of came about naturally, but that's the person we should be focusing on. Let's do another scene with them. or let's make sure in the next scene we at least discuss that character so that they start to feel like more of um, what the piece is about. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting. It's interesting to uh, have improvisers focus on just a different thing than they're used to. So having them do exercises where it's more about them... um, playing an objective hard or sort of being open to going somewhere emotionally, I think is fun for them who may have been before too worried about uh, finding a game or having the scene be funny. Yeah.
1: I I see this sometimes when I have um, people with a lot of acting training Mm -hmm. in a class. Uh, um, A a pretty consistent habit among actors is uh, um, they sort of, Go into a little bit of a panic mode when the scene isn't immediately presenting the highest emotional stakes right, and so they can kind of introduce conflicts or introduce problems mm-hmm. in order to now kind of play in their comfort zone and right. you have to do a lot of work of kind of like slowing that down away yeah do in my mind there's sort of this beautiful marriage between improv and acting mm-hmm. where improvisers are really good in the sort of in-between moments at being able to make those moments really interesting because Mm -hmm. improvisers are adept at finding games. You might not necessarily have like one overriding game, but you'll find lots of small, fun games to play Mm -hmm. that can make a waiting for a bus scene with not too much happening. Right like riveting for 35 minutes right? And, you know and that that marriage between being able to treat those kind of smaller simpler moments in a way that's that brings out the best of what improvisers can do mm-hmm. but still be courageous enough when you go into the territory that improvisers have a tendency to be uncomfortable about which right. is real intensity or burning yeah. or, or vulnerability. Mm-hmm. It, it just seems like such a wonderful, it reminds me of a quote from Martin Martin Matt at second city mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. back in the day where he was looking in the early eighties and predicting that improv would be the acting training of the 21st century. Well. Mm-hmm. And I think that, it is sort of approaching that place.
0: That's interesting.
1: Because, you know, like that marriage to me seems like that's what creates really riveting dynamic mm-hmm. performances. In some performances, the game is a little bit more at the surface and we can kind of enjoy the way it's being played on that level. Mm-hmm. And in some, the game is a little bit more kind of invisible and kind of peeks its head out periodically. Right. And there's a little bit more of a mystery to what's holding our attention to keeping right. this thing so compelling to watch, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Yeah, I think that's, just, I think I definitely, especially in, um, teaching lower level classes where actors are just starting to improvise. Notice the same thing where, um, out of, a yeah, uncomfortability will manufacture a conflict so that they have a strong choice that they can make where that's what they interpret as a strong choice. And the, and the opposite, especially with advanced students, sometimes that are very good, but a lot of what's fun in the, um, improvised play class for me he's just pushing those people that are maybe not necessarily actors to really commit to some heightened emotional state Mm -hmm. just to sort of stretch them so that they feel like they can go there later. Yeah. um, I think it's really interesting because I think it is like, and I think I have it as an improviser too. There's, you become more comfortable in that middle, that middle zone of like waiting for the bus scenes. Yeah. Um, and less, um, necessarily like suddenly willing to jump to a big emotional place yeah. and not have it feel forced and, and be willing to have it come organically. Uh, there's a exercise that I heard from, uh, an acting friend, um, that she described as, I forget uh, where she trained or she got it, but, um, basically you put two actors on either side of a room. And you tell them there's a precipice between them, um, and they can't get to the other person who they love. And so all they can do is sort of try to tell them how much that they, they love the other person. Mm. And the idea in the exercise is that, uh, every time you're, uh, you respond to your, your partner, um, you have to somehow top it. You have to be more in love than they are, Mm. um, and it, so it starts off with just someone saying, I love you. The other person's saying, I love you. And every time you have to keep in mind, it has to be bigger than the last time. Till so eventually, sometimes you have to do the exercise where people kind of have to hold the people back because they're so sort of physically even invested in this thing. And you see people, it sounds like a crazy acting school thing, but sometimes people will, will cry or they suddenly will like almost forget that it's an exercise and get to this like emotional place, which for a lot of improvisers, they don't feel comfortable being in. Yeah. Um, but it is something where uh i usually find once we've done some work like that early on in the class you'll see people just feel more comfortable knowing that that's
1: something i can get to mm-hmm. later if it feels right what's well, so the opposite of of the thing that makes improv so appealing for so many of us mm-hmm. it, it it's that ability to maintain a kind of cool we can we can show off our our minds mm-hmm. in a kind of cool place yeah where you don't have to risk that sense of embarrassment yeah. of suddenly bursting out into tears yeah. or you know, there's a whole bundle of feelings that a lot of us just don't know what to do with. And so we kind of just ignore them. Definitely. And play in this range where it's like, well, I can make everybody laugh. I'll right. stick with that. Right. How for you when you're when you're improvising that mm-hmm. way? Uh, um how maybe this is a meaningless question. Right. How do you keep yourself from from a self-consciousness that throws you out of the moment when you start to kind of register maybe some emotions. Uh, it, this might be a very personal question. Sure, yeah. Sometimes I will find myself in a scene where things are getting emotional, where mm-hmm. I'll have a little disconnect and I'll start evaluating my own performance and thinking, yeah. is that an authentic emotion or is that my, am I demonstrating this emotion right. And then I'm like, well, can be like out for the count. I'm, I'm right. preoccupied with how I'm doing and, and I need to find my way back into the scene. Right. Does that happen for you? Uh, the, yeah,
0: that's interesting. I think, well, first I'll say, I think like the first time I really noticed it more in my own acting was I had a friend who um, was an improviser, was, but was trying to do more acting and mm-hmm. didn't have that much acting training who uh, hired uh, an acting coach and wanted to do a sort of a scene study with her and needed a partner and asked if I wanted to do it. And so I agreed to it. So how the it would work is every week we would um, learn a scene from a, a play that she recommended and um, rehearse it. And then we would meet with her for a few hours and she would coach us. Mm. And I think the thing that I immediately realized was how much more sort of present and emotionally engaged she was trying to get me than what I thought of as emotionally engaged and present when I was improvising and so it made it interesting to then that maybe that night or the next day then have an improv show with the difference like sort of fresh in my mind and sort of go for it I think the thing that I end up getting more in my head about or noticing is almost well after a show sort of realizing that there was like emotional place I didn't go to mm-hmm. that I could have, I had the chance to, and, uh, for whatever reason, didn't. Um, and I think sometimes it, it comes indirectly from thinking about a scene maybe afterwards. It's like, Oh, that didn't feel good. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. And then only later sort of realizing it's like, Oh yeah, well, it's cause my character didn't really fully react to what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so me, the improviser got uncomfortable rather than just saying what would happen if I got mad at that other person for, for doing that mm-hmm. um, and let that let that happen. Uh, I do think there's something that's hard about sometimes scenes that feel great um, or I do feel emotionally and it's like, oh, I felt emotionally engaged in that scene. There is part of it where you're, the director part of your brain shuts off a little bit mm-hmm. or the writer part of your brain. Um, and it's some, sometimes sort of hard then to... Uh, We'll think about what the show sort of needs, like the part of you that should be thinking about that as an improviser, mm-hmm. that you don't necessarily have to when you're like an actor who's rehearsing and has a director to sort of guide them. Um it's sort of interesting to have like this really powerful scene and then need to like turn back on the part of your brain that's like, okay, well, what was
1: interesting and funny about that scene? How could we revisit it or yeah. how yeah. Yeah. Do do you get sometimes I will Catch myself by surprise and have an emotional response in an unexpected way that mm-hmm. just kind of feels like okay that that yeah something about that hit like a sweet spot, uh, um and then I can find myself being thrown by a sudden awareness of the impression I'm making on the audience, right? And so in for me, I find that. I need to kind of think of the audience as like a fly on the wall. I need to kind of suspend that mm-hmm. moment, which gets a lot of exercise in the comedian part of my brain mm-hmm. of like keeping half an eye on on what people are responding to and yeah. giving more of that. Yeah. But when I start thinking about my own emotions, I can fall out of actually being affected and think mm-hmm. about the figure I'm cutting for people. And that's equally yeah. horrible and rotten and synthetic. It's, it's that synthetic quality yeah. that kind of creeps in there periodically that, that yeah. makes you regret your decisions. Is that something that you also deal with?
0: Sure. I think it's because there is that it's not necessarily a bad quality. I think sometimes for an improviser to be somewhat in touch with what's with the audience. Right. And sort of get a sense of like, Oh, they like this or don't like this. Um, I think sometimes it's like a strength of improv. Um, when you were talking, it made me think of, um, I would watch, uh, um, Christina Gaussis and Scott Adsit do Mm -hmm. their two person show sometimes. And I think the thing that is funny as both of them are, the scenes that I would always like go away thinking about were scenes that they both looked super comfortable in Mm -hmm. where the audience was not comfortable. Yeah. Um, And one scene in in particular was a scene where Christina like confronted a father who had molested her when she was a a girl Mm -hmm. and he had Alzheimer's and didn't remember. And it's like not funny, Um, but it was probably my favorite scene of that night. And I was so impressed by both of them because you could feel in the audience and it may have even been audible, that they were um, uncomfortable in that scene. Mm-hmm. But I don't think either of them worried about it. Um, and neither of them, it seemed like, dropped out of it, yeah. which I think is amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, Acid can play somebody with Alzheimer's like nobody's business. It, yeah. Acid can play a mentally handicapped person and break your heart. Yeah. And, and not pull any synthetic strings. There's nothing mm-hmm. artificial about it, there's no asking for. He's not playing it for an Academy Award nomination. Yeah. But he's not making fun of that person either. It, in And when you see it, it's sort of like, it's like, oh, my God. I'm so dishonest with most of the comedy yeah. that I do yeah. because I could never even begin to imagine approaching that.
0: Yeah, it's great. Uh, I took a, a Gauss's class once where she would uh, handwrite uh, a challenge mm-hmm. for everyone to play in that scene something about your character. And I remember she had me once do a scene where I was recovering from a stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, and feeling that be really interesting and trying to do that. Like I've since then sort of used it in the improvised play class or, or, or scene study classes where I will have everyone pick uh, a disability that they're going to play in that scene. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that always happens, which is kind of great about it is, um, because no one wants to be an asshole. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all want to kind of honor that thing and have that feel like a full person and mm-hmm. not like we're making fun of something. It reminds them of what we should kind of have always when we're improvising of like playing a full human being. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we'd often get really great scenes where someone would play someone who had Alzheimer's or someone who was blind or something. And with them really trying to play to the top of their integrity and honor that thing
1: led to like sort of better scenes sort of in general. Yeah, I... I- love that you chose the phrase top of your integrity there too. Oh yeah. Yeah, I do. I it because that to me captures it so nicely. Sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes playing to the top of your intelligence can be a misleading. Yeah, I think people get thought. confused by that. Yeah. But the idea of just being the best version of this person that you can be. Right. Uh, and not needing to to show off the very top of your wit the entire time.
0: Yeah, I think that's a like um I use the terms almost interchangeably, but I think when I say top of your intelligence, um, especially if I think I'm saying it maybe to people who hadn't heard it before, I try to go into how I've heard Ian Roberts describe it, mm-hmm. which is it really should be played to the top of your sort of social intelligence of mm-hmm. you have lived in the world long enough that you know how people act and behave and react to things. So it doesn't mean playing top of their intelligence doesn't mean your character's bright or super witty or mm-hmm. can reference sophisticated things. It just means that you've you know how people behave,
1: so don't behave in a way that people don't. Yeah, 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 it, yeah. I want to talk for a second about story, because mm-hmm. um, I find when I'm watching shows, like regardless of the structure, mm-hmm. it's a Harold or or a montage or whatever. Mm-hmm. The ones that I sort of walk away from feeling like I got my money's worth and Mm -hmm. also feeling like I find myself thinking about the characters that I saw, Mm -hmm. they have a story was told. Mm -hmm. Whether it's like a really far out fantastic story or whether it's like a really simple grounded story, Mm -hmm. it feels like from beginning to end um, it moved somewhere. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it moves to Mars and sometimes it moves, you move your seat half an inch closer to me and that's the blackout. Right. But it feels like it went somewhere. Sure. Yeah. But story is one of those words that depending on who you talk to, it's one of those like controversial words yeah. like game that like uh-huh. you could start a fight. Yeah. And like wars can develop around mm-hmm. what you mean by story. But I'm curious, teaching plays to people mm-hmm. what your perspective is on story. Yeah, I
0: think... There's a time, I think, especially um, when I was doing uh, Herald Night for a while and I did Mod Night at UCB for a few years where I was very focused on sketches and I think it was before to me there's sort of been like sort of a sketch TV sort of renaissance with different shows that mm-hmm. I think are really great right now that are sketch shows but there was a period before like I would say like before Kean Peel and Amy Schumer and the Kroll Show where i wasn't I wasn't watching a lot of sketch I really loved mm-hmm. um, and the things that were making me laugh the most were things that uh, had story to it, uh, like a movie or, or, or television show. Oftentimes ones that m- might not even be necessarily like wouldn't label themselves as a comedy. Mm-hmm. So I think I was around that same point where I started taking playwright classes, playwriting classes. But I think there was something interesting at that point where there's something that I'm laughing harder at these, these um, scenes that have story. And I think what I came away with was that part of it was that I just felt that much more engaged with those characters. Mm-hmm. So something that could be very subtle would be very funny to me because I believe them and, um, sort of invested in them mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't find myself being in a lot of like two or three minute sketches. Um, so I think one thing that we really try to do in the, in the improvised play class, um, without like, cause I think it is hard like on your feet to be like, well, let's create the story. Right. Um, but I think, we do talk about this idea of we've improvised and we have this habit of um wanting the audience to laugh at us which is like not a bad thing but and this is something i I usually say before the shows it's like just remember it's like it's okay tonight to have a scene where um the laughs come every 10 minutes instead of every minute or Mm -hmm. 30 seconds um and that the audience let this be a show that's different and let them enjoy that it's different and um have them sort of be invested in the characters by sort of being truthful and committing. Um, so then as far as like story, we really don't go that much further than that idea of like really simply which character in the beginning of the play seems to have the greatest want and how do we make sure that at the end they either get it or they don't mm-hmm. um, so that it isn't something that they're so preoccupied with the story part of it um,
1: that they are improvising and they aren't acting. Yeah. But the important thing with that, too, is that they try for it. Like, it's not enough to just hand somebody what they want or take away what they want or give sure. them what they're most yeah, afraid. Yeah, that they're actually going after it. Yeah. yeah, and and that to me is like, whether you're doing a play or, or I think the exact same thing operates in Harold's, too, mm-hmm that for me early on in a Harold in a first beat, you kind of get close to like figuring out what's driving right. somebody. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the piece, you're watching them act on it mm-hmm. until it goes wherever it goes, until right. something changes or you just watch a cycle repeat itself. Right. But it, it's that thing of being able to recognize, okay, this is what I'm after. Maybe mm-hmm. this is my reason for wanting to be after it. Right. And then what am I prepared to do to, right. to grab it? What decisions will I make? Right. So, so... So, for people, once you've recognized in the play who your main character is, Mm -hmm. um, will other people sort of help that person along by kind of underlining to them what they wanted? Because sometimes you can find yourself in a scene where you you said it, you did it, but you didn't recognize it. Right. So, are are people like in making it their job as an ensemble to help to clarify that for each other? I think, in the sense
0: that um, after the first scene. Um, if someone's like, oh, I did that scene with her, I think she feels like the protagonist. She has like, I think the biggest want, yeah. um, I'll point to her to come out for the second scene and I'll be a character that it would make sense for her to be with, to be getting what she wants. Yeah. So like if she talked about how, um, she's taking care of her mom, but she really wants to go back to uh, school. Um, the next scene might be, someone might be like, well, I'll be someone who a friend of hers that is in school. Um, talking to her about what what college is like, mm-hmm. um, so we sort of find it sort of that way. Yeah, um, I think one thing you said about the Herald that I think made me think too. That's another thing I think about with story is something. When I'm teaching second beats, I think like it would be something at UCB in particular for a while. Uh, I think the terminology people would um, use a lot would be to really try to get people to avoid plot. Mm-hmm. And I think now it's it's taught i think better in the sense that um i think there's you can tell let people know that's like plot is not necessarily bad um there's lots of good second beats um that have plot but how we're teaching it is that um the character's point of view from the first beat should be still the same and, mm-hmm. and clear and they should be doing the same sort of behavior that we found funny or, or uh yeah, it's the same behavior we found funny in the first beat and we should find an opportunity for them to show us that behavior again. Yeah. If they have a huge life change and are no longer the characters we saw, that's bad plot. If it's yeah. like, oh, they won the lottery and are no longer whatever. Um, but if we're like, oh, winning the lottery, which is technically plot, there's, something's happening in their life, um, allows us to find a new way that they can show that behavior, that's a yeah. great second beat.
1: What's, this is, might be splitting hairs, mm-hmm. but what's the difference in your mind between plot and story?
0: I don't know if there is one. I don't know if I've
1: given a lot of thought to it. Because um, those words also feel loaded. Right. You know, it, sure. it, a lot of times when you're referencing plot, you're being negative about it. You're right. telling people there's too much plot. Right. But a lot of times when you're talking about like, oh, what a great story. There's right. a positive association That's to that. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I don't think that there is. I think it's like similarly like, um, like you said, there could be... S- a story where it's as subtle as the person moves their chair forward at the end and you've seen how they've changed. And I think you could say the same thing. Well, that's the plot. Mm-hmm. Um I do think, yeah, plot probably has more negative connotation, but I don't necessarily,
1: the way I think of them um, distinguish them that much. Maybe it's just the word. Maybe it's just the sound of the word. Yeah, sounds, it's a harsh, yeah. sounds like, like a bummer friend. That's oh, plot. Yeah. Don't, plot. I, don't invite plot today. It sounds, yeah, technical. We or, want to have a good time. Yeah. I don't want to be around plot. Yeah. What about, Drama, I'm curious with that mm-hmm. because the, well, what's your sort of like overall sensibility in the relationship between drama and comedy? Because obviously it, to tell a good story mm-hmm. and to develop a good play, there you want that through line. You want there to be that internal logic that people right. are following that's making them follow along with you until the conclusion. And right. a lot of times that's a dramatic thing, mm-hmm. but you also want to be keeping people Right. Feeling good and in, in mm-hmm. high spirits and entertain. So, so how do those two go together in your perspective? I think one show
0: I think about, like there's a television show, uh, that I think does a good job of sort of bridging it is, um, beep. Do you mm-hmm. watch beep? Oh yeah. I think one thing I really like about that, and there's a couple other comedies that are similar to it, is that that show for the most part has dramatic storylines. Mm-hmm. It's almost just how it's told and how it's performed that makes it comedic. Like they choose what's absurd sort of about that. Um, But the whole season arcs are things that could be dramatic. It's like, oh, this woman is trying to become president or um, get the support from this person. Um, Aren't necessarily the kind of objectives you see sometimes in sitcoms um, that are from the start, very silly. Mm -hmm. Um, And what she has to go through to get that might be absurd Uh, or her reaction to something. Um, I think part of it is just how well good the actors are. Yeah. Um, uh, Allows it to like, for us to have absurd situations played in a way. And I guess this is what I think all comedy should be, but played in that way where it doesn't seem like the actors are thinking
1: of it as comedy. Mm -hmm. There's some people who can, as the, I don't know the right words to express this. It's like, as the story is kind of playing through their sensibility as a performer, Mm -hmm. they just have this, lovely ability to kind of put enough of a twist on it that you're if you're not laughing you're feeling right your comedy brain has been turned on right and sometimes you can't exactly say what they're doing that's making that happen it's, it's just like a, a personality is a lightness of touch yeah. to it. it like i'm thinking of high maintenance on on vimeo mm-hmm. and there are episodes of high maintenance that there's lot of sadness going on in the background do you watch mm-hmm. that i've seen an episode i haven't yeah there's one episode in particular with this guy who who is gay and and living with his sick mother and mm-hmm. he kind of hoards he buys things online and then mm-hmm. just like hoards them and 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 his life seems very lonesome and mm-hmm. very sad and the whole episode sort of plays out and so so getting this pot dealer to come to his apartment mm-hmm. is sort of like just like his little tiny like friend and like, right. he like uh, 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 stretches out their exchange for like as long as you can, right. you know? And it's very, very sad. But the main guy in the show keeps it light enough that you don't feel heavy and depressed afterwards. Right. Even in that sadness, it, it's like right. that sadness got filtered through the comedy part of your brain. Right. It, 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 you know what I mean by that? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I'm always fascinated by those things where it's like, this isn't funny exactly. I can't break right. down the mechanics of why this is funny, the right. way, you know? But- but it's still living in the same part of me.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because there's shows like, uh, the Sopranos too. Yeah. yeah. I would find so funny. Yeah. And, uh, um, but yeah, when you think about it, maybe, uh, in the abstract, it's like, oh, it's, it's not a funny show. It's just like very ruthless show. And there's so much violence. Um, but there'd be moments that I would laugh much more in than watching like a traditional, uh, sitcom. Yeah.
1: Uh, I felt that way when I saw No Country for All Men the first time. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. And it was only hilarious because it was so tense yeah. that it, it got kind of ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, and and so the movement of an eye or like that that great scene where the, the rapper is just like unwrapping on the mm-hmm. counter becomes such a funny little punctuation. Yeah. yeah, it's a really fascinating thing.
0: I thought about it a little bit when... Jeffrey Tambor won uh, a Golden mm-hmm. Globe for Transparent, yeah. which is a show I really like. And I love him as an actor. But it's interesting. It's like in Transparent, it's like I really like him. But part of me is like, is it a comedy? Yeah. There's definitely parts I laugh at. I feel like I laugh at his scenes less. His scenes, I'm always just empathizing with him. Yeah. Um, but then I think of him in like other uh, shows like uh, um, Arrested Development or uh, Gary Shandling. Mm-hmm. And I also think part of it, I listened to a podcast once with him and someone was talking about, I think it was still when Arrested Development was going, that he was doing, he was playing like King Lear that summer and they were asking him how it's different to approach uh, uh, George Sr. And, and King Lear. And he went into saying about how he, he tries to play it the same way mm-hmm. that the Arrested Development writers give him a, an absurd perspective maybe, or an absurd way of going, getting what he wants. Mm-hmm. But um, his approach as an actor is exactly the
1: same. Yeah. I, I think of it, I think about like vanity a lot. Mm-hmm. That if you can sort of like uh, isolate a person's vanity, where mm-hmm. their pride is coming from, you, yeah. you've found the sweet spot. That's definitely what uh, they do in Veep. Yeah. Like Julia Dreyfus, that's perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's amazing once you start looking for it, you find it everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like the main difference. I could be completely wrong about this, but in serious, heavy uh, uh, drama, mm-hmm. you know, it tends to lead to bad outcomes for people. It, right. it, you know, uh, uh, King Lear's vanity is going to lead to tragedy right. for everybody. Right. In Arrested Development, the worse George Bluth is, the more you love him, Right, it, you like people for for right. exactly the thing that in real life you would probably want to avoid right. about them. So it's almost like that little tiny tonal shift that kind of gives you permission to enjoy kind of like a rotten side to somebody, right. and it just like it, it alters your experience of the entire thing. Right,
0: that's interesting. It made as soon as you started talking about it, it made me think of uh, Breaking Bad too. Yeah, and sort of how much of that is like finding that character's
1: vanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it. I, I play around with that in classes a lot recently, the last like six that's months. Interesting, that's interesting, yeah. been I've been trying to figure out exercises to like help bring that to the surface or help mm-hmm. you get a sense of like, okay, where's my pride in this? Right. And how do I just filter things through this pride?
0: That's interesting. That makes me think I had a Moliere class, uh, acting class in college, and I, it suddenly flashed back us talking more about characters' vanity in yeah. that class to find like the comedy in, yeah. in
1: someone, yeah. One, one thing... I find surprisingly useful. I stole this from Jill Bernard uh-huh. is um, you do scenes where it's a two person scene, but one person gets all the dialogue and the other mm-hmm. person just doesn't say a word. And, and, and you have to actively encourage them not to like make frowny faces right. or like do shitty object work right. or just like you just, your job is to just pay attention to this other person right and let them speak and give them permission to do it where you don't have to fill it with dialogue. It's not a monologue. You you can speak when you feel like it and don't speak when you feel like it, but you're not making a problem with this other person not speaking to you. Mm -hmm. And it's actually amazing how often those scenes will begin to veer. Once people kind of like relax into Mm -hmm. it, they'll start bragging about certain things. And then you begin to sort of find of like, oh, there's like the the artificial layer of what you're trying to show. But then you get down to this kind of bedrock of like, oh, you just found the way this character thinks about themselves. Right. You just gave yourself an entire show.
0: Right. It's really interesting. That is interesting. I think it, it reminded me also of one of the things that I think we talk about as a class in the playwriting class, or the improvised play class, is um, one, I try to encourage them to see as many plays as they can while mm. the class is happening so we can talk about them. And then come back with sort of, what are things you're seeing in plays that you never see in improv? Mm-hmm. And how can we try to steal them, sort of? Uh, and one of the things that... We talk about a lot is oftentimes in improv we don't let a character have a monologue or talk for an extended period because we either feel like that's putting too much pressure on them mm-hmm. or it's selfish uh, or people are going to think I don't know what I'm talking about if mm-hmm. I don't interject um, soon and so one of the things we try to do in that in that class is um, at first structure it so we know it's going to happen but then just find more opportunities for if a character wants to talk but what would be like half a page of dialogue or something being comfortable with letting that happen and what we get out of that. Yeah. And then the flip side of it, which is like that character not talking that exercise of the other thing that we see, we're talking about seeing a lot more in plays than we necessarily see in improv or most improv is, um, being comfortable not
1: talking mm-hmm. and being comfortable silences and what that says. Yeah. It, it well, here's an interesting thing that happens too. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll run that exercise for different reasons. Uh huh. But sometimes I'll teach Harold with that exercise, mm-hmm. and uh, for the second beat, we'll flip it, and the silent person speaks. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and what's fascinating is invariably that person knows exactly what to say; they know exactly what to respond to, and and it's coming out of like a fully formed point of view. Oh. That if you buck the. Um, tension that you feel early on in a scene where you Mm -hmm. feel like I have to be responding to this right Mm -hmm. now and sort of sit on it, Mm -hmm. it, you like your listening actually kicks in. Right. And it like touches down on, on sort of like, Oh, that's a more authentic response for me. So by the time you get to a third beat where people are able to both speak together, they both know exactly where they're coming from and know how to respond to one another.
0: Right. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I definitely think there's like a big part of people not being able to listen well and improv is that thing of, like, they're so focused on what they're going to say next. It's a patience thing.
1: Yeah. But it, and it's scary as hell, too, because you really do, you feel um, like you're boring people. Right. Or like you're, you, 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 either you're boring them or you feel like you're letting them down mm-hmm. or like they're starting to judge of, like, this guy just doesn't, he can't keep up. Right. He's not fast enough. Right. But it's having that patience with yourself and having that patience with your partner and Mm -hmm. just like letting them express their idea and letting them get down to it and Mm -hmm. having a few moments where you're not hitting it back to them immediately. Like a lot of times it it just like triggers really great listening because you're giving yourself time to let it become real. There's a great exercise at um, that I stole from uh, um, the Barrow group. Uh Uh, Seth Barris wrote a, a book on an, on like acting tips, Mm -hmm. pretty useful book. And one of it, he just calls it a silent improv. And it's just, the teacher gives um, like a loaded scenario to, Mm -hmm. to actors. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you just, you're in an emergency room, you were in a car accident, you were checking your cell phone and you rear-ended me and hit my, my, my kid's head into the, into the, you know, dashboard or whatever. So now he's in orders. But the whole exercise is you just hanging out together in silence in that space. You're not Mm -hmm. no object work, no uh, uh, interaction. There's no dialogue. You're just hanging mm-hmm. out, and you're just reminding yourself what the circumstances are. Right. And I've done it a few times, and it 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 feels pretty weird at first, mm-hmm. but after a little while, the silence becomes very natural, mm-hmm. and you actually find that reminding yourself of the circumstances starts triggering feelings. Right. It it and you start to very spontaneously kind of sense of like I know. Right, I know what this character is thinking right, right now and what they're feeling right, right now. But it requires a huge amount of patience and permission on the part of the teacher or the director to kind of like let you.
0: Yeah, I think there's something that's interesting. Like w- with that exercise and that idea of like really thinking about what your circumstances are, I think that's something that can be like a big thing we focus on that's different from sometimes watching a play through an improv scene is sometimes you'll watch imp- improv where the improvisers are... um it's not even that they're just, they are just—they haven't um, specified out loud what their circumstances are, but you can see the improvisers haven't made a choice yeah. about what they are, and yeah. so they play very vaguely. Yes. And what's great about, I think, exercises like that is to sort of show them, it's like when you make those choices right away, it's so much easier. Yes. And every move that you make um, says something Yeah. because um, you know who that person is and, and what you're feeling about them and, and what's going on. Um, one exercise I've started doing, which I find really interesting, interesting in improv didn't know how it would work doing it because it felt so sort of at odds with what um i'd sort of thought about with improv was based on a a playwriting exercise um to write a scene with subtext Mm -hmm. where um basically it'd be like two characters talking about um something um sort of safe um but we, the, the audience should have a sense that there's something like underlying Mm. what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, and I sort of started doing it with, uh, in that class of doing these like scenes with subtext with the, um, sometimes with the change that, um, at some point in the scene, but it can't be in like the first two minutes or three minutes, we'll find out what they really want to say. Um, but there was one scene that was great in class where, um, this guy, I think he started it with, uh, I went for a, a jog today and, uh, there's like sort of a, a pause and, um, the other improviser was like, uh, oh, how was it? And it eventually he's like, oh, it was good. I, I ran by the school. Oh. And eventually what was found out was, a, this was a couple who had, um, lost a child. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's great about it is that it's like an improv. There's always. It's, I feel like people are just like, well, don't be coy. Mm-hmm. But there is so much about life where people are not talking, saying what they really want to say. Yeah. Um, that was sort of exciting to get to. It's like, oh, that's interesting to find that in improv too, where characters can be not necessarily like
1: super direct. Yeah. Because we're not always like that in improv or in life. <laughs> well, there's a difference between that and coyness. For, right. Yeah. The coyness factor it, it always comes in. There's always like a smug element right that like when i reveal it yeah you're gonna love this yeah. and it's always annoying because it's like just say the goddamn thing and right you know but it that reminds me of um there's an exercise that Craig Kikowski teaches that mm-hmm. is just fantastic uh and he sets it up that all right for the next half hour um we are going to be presenting scenes you and your partner are doing scenes written scenes from contemporary uh um award-winning plays Mm -hmm. that you have been rehearsing with me as your director for the past month. And Mm -hmm. and we've really nailed it and got the blocking down, right. And then he'll announce to everybody in the class. So we're now we're going to see the, the, um, the kitchen scene from, and then he'll give the name of the title, totally made up name. And then you spend six minutes being in that scene. That's great. And he'll, he'll do it where it's like, okay, places Mm -hmm. lights up. it's like a kind of a gentle thing. And it has a very similar effect to what you're describing where all of a sudden, everything becomes loaded. And actually right. the, the when it fails, it fails because people start thinking about like overriding it and making their dialogue sound right. really precious. Right. But when people don't treat it like that at all, yeah. it, it everything about it feels heightened and meaningful. And you start to intuitively sense the subtext of mm-hmm. it. You begin having different kinds of thoughts than you might normally in a Herald or, right. or whatever. And it's all just that context of alerting people that what we're about to see is deliberate and meaningful, mm-hmm. and it's interesting how often when we improvise, we don't either we don't give ourselves that context or we don't give the audience that context, and right. so they're not clued in to watch for meaningful behavior. Right. But it's sort of all it takes is finding a way to just kind of frame it off for them early on. Right, something incredible is happening under the surface of these right. people. Watch, that's like all you got to say. Right, uh, um, that's interesting. It makes me think a little bit too of of ways like in Harold where we can end up overplaying our scenes. Like I think of it as sort of like right. what you're agreeing to together early on, your mm-hmm. who, what, and where. I think of as being more of the frame of the scene. You're mm-hmm. framing off like a window through right. which we're now going to watch these people. Right. But a lot of times we can end up becoming more focused on creating a pretty frame mm-hmm. than on what is actually being, right. being composed for us, mm-hmm. you know? To me, the frame is just setting up enough context for the audience to appreciate what's going to happen and then Mm -hmm. treating the rest of it as meaningful, as having a a sense of deliberateness to it. Right. You know.
0: I think that's, yeah, I think uh, it's funny with TJ and Dave, sometimes they'll have a 201 student who will come in and be like, oh, I saw TJ and Dave this weekend. And sometimes what they'll say is, um, you know, we've talked about trying to establish our who, what, where early. It's like, I didn't know who they were to each other till 15 minutes into it. And it was great. Yeah. <laughs> and what I usually have to explain, it's like, you didn't know. But they knew. But they knew. Yeah. They made that choice as soon as the scene started. Yeah. And that's why um, when someone did something so small, you could have a sense that that was interesting or unusual because they had made that choice. Yeah. Um, I remember watching uh, a Herald Night. Sometimes it'd be a Herald Night. It would usually be around auditions or something when teams were getting mixed up where they would um, have people that were on weekend teams uh, do heralds, Mm -hmm. people who hadn't been doing them for a while. And I think uh, the thing sometimes that was interesting was they hadn't been doing them so long. They'd lost a little bit of what sometimes I think uh, can hurt uh, a herald team, like team or performer of being so uh, nervous about finding a game Mm -hmm. um, so that you would watch a scene. I remember watching scenes that's like, I can't remember. It was like, I remember like Zach Woods doing a scene and Neil Casey doing a scene. Which didn't seem like, even though that it was edited around the same time most Harold's are, like maybe it was like a three minute scene or something like that. It felt longer. It felt like both of them were just relaxed. But at the end it's like, oh yeah, I know what the game is. I know what's funny and Mm -hmm. interesting about that scene, but no one was like rushing to make the who, what, where like super explicit. They both, you could tell made choices. Um, and it was sort of a similar it's Like, oh yeah, we we can always do that, yeah. right? We don't
1: have to be so worried about it. Yeah. Well, it it Pesquese said something in a workshop one time that it, I have always have always thought was so awesome, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of other teachers have disagreed with it, and they're wrong, and he's right. Okay. He said, uh, um, "Leave it ambiguous if you can afford to," and it's huh. like that's so fabulous right and and the difference between ambiguous and vague is exactly what you're saying that in, right. when it's ambiguous you know exactly what you're thinking you know right. exactly what the choice is you're just not saying it right but everybody can sense the contours of that choice under the surface of yeah. what they're watching and so as it reveals itself slowly over time there's just as much a pleasure in the playing of the game mm-hmm. as there is in the revelation of like what's been in front of us this entire time but you're only getting little tiny Small peaks of it. Right. And I think that that's something that very naturally comes to seasoned performers, Mm -hmm. even if they're not consciously thinking of it. That when you see a Neil Casey or Zach Woods doing Harold, these guys are just so easy with the choices that they make. It's no big deal. And they don't have to over communicate it. Yeah. What you see with a lot of nervous people is over communication of those choices. Mm -hmm. They say it, they're direct with it. Great. It's what you want. Right. And then they keep on. Yeah. They're, they're yes anding the wrong thing. You're yes ending the frame. Right. You know, like uh, they keep on like giving you more details that are unnecessary and they don't give themselves the time to mean what they say. Yeah. You know? I think, yeah, I think it's that thing. Sometimes you'll
0: see scenes where like the parent is calls the, the other improviser son or something to make that clear. Yeah. And it's like, well, we knew you were father and son before that, but by the way you were treating yeah. him. Um, and then the flip side of it, and it's another thing we try to like, I think work on in like scene studies or in the, uh, play class is sometimes people sort of ignoring that where let's say we don't, haven't specified a relationship for five minutes into the scene. And then suddenly someone says something and labels them something that does not fit what the tone was mm-hmm. and sort of getting them to be like, did it feel like that? Did it feel like he was your boss? Cause mm-hmm. it, you weren't acting like he mm-hmm. was your boss. Um, and then usually it's usually it's something where it's like uh they're either too worried about what was happening to, to notice it, or they did notice it and thought it would be funny
1: yeah. to say something that didn't fit what they'd already established. Yeah. 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 It it I think of it as like respecting the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I don't know what annoys me more when I'm when I'm like coaching somebody, if they missed it completely because they're too nervous about themselves. Right. Or if they picked up on it and decided to go for what they thought was a funny contrast. Yeah. Funny contrast annoys me every single goddamn time I see yeah. it. Because it, it, it's just like that cute element of like, oh, you took me out of this. I was in it with you and you took me out of it right. because you had to show off. So I guess I answered my own question. Yeah, that's what annoys that's the me one. more. That's the I one. think
0: the second one annoys me more too, partly because it's also the thing. It's like,
1: well, you're making your partner now seem crazy. Right. God damn yeah. it. Oh, it's the worst. Yeah. It's the worst. it It's interesting because like I want to go back to, to college improv. Mm-hmm. Because in college improv, you're dealing with people who, for the most part, are not terribly seasoned or right. at the beginning of their journey. And mm-hmm. so there's more of the nerves and there's more of a sense of like, okay, we need the context to the scene. We need the who, what, and where. Right. We need the agreement really mm-hmm. desperately. It's yeah. like your life fest. So with newer people or with nervous people, there can be a tendency to like hold on super tightly right. and not have that relaxed quality that, that Julia Louis-Dreyfus, for right. example, has that lets something be funny even though it's not mm-hmm. funny. It's just the way that you approach it. Right. So so how do you work with college improvisers? What do you see them doing to kind of help them get over that? Well, okay, let me rephrase mm-hmm. that. What are the essential things that people need to do, need to hit in scenes in order to make choices that will be powerful and serve them and give them the best possible opportunity to let it grow into something right? with legs?
0: I think two things you can do With uh, beginning improvisers, college improvisers or otherwise, I think one, and sometimes if I do workshops with like high school students, I do it too, is kind of what you talked about is like sometimes just giving them the circumstance and then let them play with it Mm -hmm. takes away a lot of what is hard sort of early and lets them just live in it immediately. So rather than just give them a suggestion, say, go, say something like, uh, you two are kids that were caught doing something in school. You're waiting outside the principal's office. Um, that they sort of, because there's a little bit less of the panic of like, what are we going to create? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't start with like a, with a really absurd premise mm-hmm. and sort of can just go into it. And I think sometimes it's doing exercises like Park Bench of Truth or something where you sort of explicitly tell them, don't worry about this being funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and exercises sometimes where you're like, you are playing you yourself. You are not playing a character, You it's you. So if you say something that sounds weird to me, I might ask you, would you really say that? Mm-hmm. And if you did, that's okay. Um, but to try to get them to a place where um, I guess they buy into a circumstances and what it means to treat that real Mm -hmm. and sort of remind themselves um, by having them think of their sort of how they play themselves and what's to the top of their own integrity. Well, now when we go into characters that shouldn't feel like a big change. I think the big thing that's really interesting to me about college improv teams that I think is even different from other beginning improv, uh, like if you're teaching like an early class or something, is that you go in and they already have a dynamic of like, who's good and who's not, yeah. who's the leader, who knows what they're talking about, who doesn't. Yeah. Uh, especially because like it, you're going in where um, the difference between someone who knows what they're talking about and doesn't could be that they read a book yeah. or that they took a one workshop once um, or that they're a senior and you're a freshman. So I think um, the thing that makes it really different is dealing with those sort of egos mm-hmm. and those sort of like statuses that, you can sense immediately by like um, who tells you what the group does and right. what their thing is. Right. And yeah. um, and I think one of the things that's more fun about working with them is sort of finding those people that maybe right now are the freshmen and don't have a much of a voice or not entrusted with a lot. And to sort of point out oftentimes like the really great things that they're doing that are sort of small and subtle mm-hmm. and without trying to insult them or, or anything, sort of point out where the people that are like the sort of the big dogs can work. Yeah. Um, cause that's the big, it's like, and I think it's, unless you are an improv group that is located close enough where there's some sort of outside instruction that you can come to for coaching, I think the big challenge is, well, how do we do this without giving each other notes? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the hard
1: thing. Yeah. Do you, um, what do you see become of the kind of big dogs after graduation? Are there any like there's different kinds and some are
0: like the people that are like they're the charismatic leader who loves it yeah but also um it's not necessarily a bad thing they're right. the people that like um everyone else feels more confident playing sure. with right then there's the uh the and then there's the people age. that are like I think the people that are usually on the bad side uh negative side of it are the people who run into a lot of trouble suddenly being a small fish somewhere else and yeah. suddenly not being able to dictate what is right and wrong yeah um and are oftentimes the people who don't make that next step um, that are maybe more likely to try to find a scene that they can start on top of right away. Mm-hmm. Um, but like when I, I teach a lot of 201 classes at, at UCB and it's interesting when people come in with some sort of improv experience from college that they have, uh, usually it's like the same kind of uh bag of what's good and bad. Mm. Um what's good is usually that they have a little bit of confidence, a little bit of um um sense of performing. Can usually have a, a, a basic sense of like sort of yes anding and building the scene. Um but then also have this thing of um because they've been doing shows a lot of bad habits of what they do to get laughs really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um and oftentimes it's like playing characters that are very broad mm-hmm. um and oftentimes it's it's scenes where you can see that they don't trust their partner mm-hmm. um and are trying to steer it because they they're the ones that have been improvising for however long yeah um, so yeah, and it's like so sometimes it's like those people are very difficult um and sometimes pe- they they come in humble and are the like stand out in the class that makes everything easier
1: yeah i I watched the um College improv tournament semifinals the last oh, three great, years, yeah, and uh, there was one group. I thought this was so delightful. Uh-huh. I think they were from Princeton, but I don't remember. Uh-huh. But they were a fantastic group, like a mm-hmm. r- great chemistry and really smart and but relaxed and and treated each other well. Mm-hmm. It wasn't immediately clear who was like yeah. the big dog. There was one uh, girl in the group who, the first year didn't say a word in the entire show, and Mm -hmm. she just looked a little bit, like, shell-shocked. And they kind of, like, played around her Mm -hmm. a little bit. They weren't disrespectful, but, like, you know, they played around her. And then the second year I saw them, and same thing. She's still in the group. Mm -hmm. Maybe she said a sentence in the entire show. Third year I saw them, she continued to not say anything, but she had gotten so good. Oh, wow. Uh, She was still, like, totally silent for the show. But this year she was relaxed right, and you could see what she was thinking while the scenes were going on and it, it, what I thought was not only how wonderful for her Mm -hmm. to actually have found her voice without having to like go beyond what she already started with right. but how wonderful for them. What an amazing group to give each other that gift of that warmth of just like not shitting on you for doing it differently or wrong or whatever but just like Playing with you, regardless, and it was like right. you saw it over three years. It just kind of like something thawed, and even though it was exactly right. what you said on stage the entire time, right. it was it suddenly felt so authentic, and and that's awesome. You bought it, and they treated her that way too. They right. were responding to her. Son. It was just just fantastic. That's great. Yeah. You know, like you see stuff like that, and it's like oh, like not to get too like mm-hmm. improv nerdy or gushy right. about it, but it it when you stop being jerks about it and, and stop right. being like the right and wrong of it, and right. and start just kind of like really working to make it like a good experience right. for everybody in the group. It, it's amazing the things that can happen. Yeah,
0: There is, I think like um, a great thing sometimes about some college groups when you meet them is there is there is something that you, because it is like the first time they're improvising for the most part. And it's often like a very close knit group where it's yeah. like that is their college social group. Yeah. That's like their whole lives. That um, you do see something like more than necessarily even like, older teams where um, they've found yet really an interesting sort of uh, voice as a team and as how they play sort of individually in that team um, that doesn't seem like anyone is pointing at them. as like, well, we should all play this way. Right. Yeah. Um, which is great. Yeah. yeah. Cause I love that story that it wasn't that she became confident and was suddenly this loud
1: person who initiated every scene. Exactly. It's actually sound she, she found, yeah, always was. Yeah. It was, just, great. it was just like she found the right frame for it and I was like, yep, oh, that's it. That's me, yeah. Yeah, it really awesome. Um, uh, it's interesting too because like you're also at that stage of your life, you're not yet at like, okay, I'm getting older and I have to be making like <laughs> right. concentrated career choices yeah. or whatever and you're not yeah. like having that wrestle going yeah. on. You're still at that phase of your life where it's like, oh, the work that you're doing as a group together right now is like, the work stands for itself and that's what it is and, and, and kind of one for all. And, you know.
0: Yeah. I think that's, I think like the combination of like most of the time with college teams, they have free space Mm -hmm. so they can rehearse as much as they want. They don't have to be worried about it. They have, yeah, less things going on where they're worried about their individual careers or stuff. They have, I think one thing that's awesome about them sometimes too, is that not necessarily everyone on that group wants to do, be really serious about improv after college, right? Someone's going to be a professor someone's going to be a doctor or yeah. whatever um so you sometimes get i think a more interesting blend of voices than sometimes you you get with only people that are like improv is my thing for life right um yeah and that thing it's like for me it's like by far doing improv in college was the most important thing i did um and i think the thing that has a much more taught me more um and affected me more like going past college than any of my classes or anything else it was like learning to sort of collaborate in that group and teamwork both as far as like the actual performing but just also just teamwork as far as like we need to share a show and putting it together and advertising for it because we're the only people who are going to do it yeah um
1: i think taught me more bernie gardner Thanks for talking. Thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. Yeah, it was really great. Uh, uh, Please uh, find out more about Brandon's thoughts on stuff by checking out your college improv advisor. And you can see Brandon improvise with the curfew at UCB and also with improv nerds at the Beast, UCB East. Uh, um, Anything else that uh, people can search for you online, sir? Uh, no, those are the big ones. Okay, yep. cool. Awesome. Thanks again for talking and thank you guys for listening. This has been the Magnet Theatre Podcast. Uh, big thank you to Grant Goldberg, our engineer, Evan Barden, our producer. Um, please check us out online to find out more about who we are and what we do. Magnettheater.com is the name of that website to find out all that information. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating, a positive rating, a multi-starred rating, and maybe some kind words on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy the podcast, keep it to yourself. <laughs> it's okay. No worries there. Uh, I've been Lewis Kornfeld. Thanks again for listening. Once again, Brandon Gardner. Thank you very much. Thank you. So long, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast.